So let me start by asking a question. Do you pray? Well, it's a simple question, I think. And most of us would reflexively answer, yes, of course I pray. Uh, But how often do you consider why you pray? Or what's happening when you pray? Or how to even approach this God of the Bible? Well, today I want us to consider why Jesus is necessary to our praying life and what keeps us from praying as we'd like to. Uh, We'll consider this passage that starts with the, the basis for approaching God and then gives exhortations for Uh, for approaching God. But let's be honest. Uh, Sometimes we're not confident. We're not hopeful when we pray. And sometimes we just don't pray at all. So with that reality in mind, uh, what we'll do is we'll draw four hindrances to prayer out of this text that our author assumes. Now I hope by the end of our time together we'll we'll all be encouraged by the author's exhortations to pray more confidently, hopefully, Uh, both in private prayer and in praying together. But I'm going to give you a spoiler, okay? Here's the point. God invites you to approach him with confidence and hope. He wants you to come to him. And he tells us that if you come to him and you pray and you cry out in mercy in Jesus' name, he'll hear you and he'll respond. So let's stand in honor of God's word as we read... Chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now you may have a seat. Now, before we move into what hinders us in prayer, uh, we need to understand the, the author's context. He starts verse 19 with saying, therefore since. Uh, so we should back up and we should see the case that he's been building up to this point. Uh, you may know that Hebrews is basically divided up into three large sections. Uh, the middle section starting in chapter 4 verse 14 and going all the way through chapter 10 verse 25. And then Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, and chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, act as bookends to this section. And what the author of Hebrews is doing in that section is he's developing this case for why Jesus is the greatest high priest. He is the priest above all priests. Now, in the Old Testament, a priest's job was to mediate the relationship between God and his people. And there were a lot of priests, but there was only one high priest at a time. And that high priest would approach the Holy of Holies once a year to offer sacrifices to God on behalf of the people for their sins. Now, you you may know the Old Testament really well, or you may need to 
brush up on it here. What is the Holy of Holies? Well, let's take a quick tour of the Old Testament temple, and we'll find out. So there was the court of the Gentiles. Uh, That was, for most of us in this room, unless you have a Jewish background, that's where you and I would have go to worship God if we consider ourselves God-fears. Far, far from the Holy of Holies. Then beyond that was the court of the Jewish women. Beyond that was the hall of Israel where the men congregated. Then beyond that was the priest hall where the sacrifices were prepared. Then there was a centerpiece. There was a section called the holy place where only the priests could go once they had cleansed themselves. They'd bring the sacrifice. Finally, within the holy place was a section with a thick, tall, massively tall curtain. And beyond that curtain was the holy of holies. Now, this is the place where God chose to dwell with his people. This is where his, his glory um, was, was in his people's midst. Now, this is the place where the high priest would go once a year, every year, to offer a blood sacrifice for the people. All of these courts and these chambers and these halls uh, were meant to put safeguards in place between the people and a holy God. Otherwise, they would have approached him in an unauthorized manner because of their sin. And that would have resulted in their death, rightfully so. And approaching God with these safeguards in place uh, was a way to recognize God's glory and his holiness, but also to protect people from what was just and due to them, which was death. So it was this way for the people to approach God, but kind of in a distant, protective way. Now, you might be thinking, okay, that's great. That was the Old Testament. Uh, But what does the Old Testament temple and the high priest have to do with me today? Well, uh, if you know your Bible, then you know it teaches us that all of us are sinners, and we're all separated from God because of our sin. And unless there's an intermediary uh, between us and God, then we're going to be destroyed because sin cannot be in the presence of God. Now, that may offend our Western sensibilities. Uh, We don't like it when somebody else doesn't like us. And we can never imagine somebody just not liking us because we're just nice people. Uh, Let alone somebody's wrath being upon us. Kind of a scary thing, and I don't know how often you experience that, but uh, I don't have many enemies in this world that I know of. But friends, unless you understand the offensiveness of your sin before God and his just wrath against your sin, then the good news that Jesus is your high priest is not going to be good news to you. So think about that. Jesus is our high priest. And Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is a high priest for all people, all of his people, not just Jews, and that the place that he now approaches God is not an earthly temple, but it's before the very throne of God in heaven. Now, one famous example uh, is Moses. Now, we see him as a prophet. We know him as a prophet, but he also serves some priestly functions because he would represent the people before God. He led the Hebrew people out of slavery from Egypt. And there are a multitude of scenes where where Moses is before God and he's either asking for guidance or he's repenting for the sins of the people. There's even some scenes where he's just pleading with God not to destroy them 
for their willful sin. But even Moses was a flawed man who didn't get to enter the promised land with the people of God because of his own sin. His own sin kept him from seeing the promises of God in this earthly life. Now, though Jesus' ministry is similar to Moses' ministry in many ways, Jesus is categorically different from Moses and from all the other priests. In Hebrews 7, 23 through 28, we get a good sense of these differences. You can flip there or you can just listen. Listen to this. This is chapter 7, verses 23 through 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because it continues forever. This is Jesus. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. This is Jesus. He's completely different from the priest of the past. And we don't have to sit in the court of the Gentiles anymore. Jesus, once and forever, offered a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice for his people, which was himself. Now, this sacrifice will never have to be offered again, which means that the requirements of the temple are are no longer necessary. The, The earthly temple itself is no longer necessary. Now you begin to get a sense of the distance, the necessary distance between God and his people. Now, this brings us back to verse 19 of chapter 10. Jesus, by his sacrifice, has provided a new and a living way to God, direct access. We've been ushered into the holy holies before the Lord God Almighty with Jesus himself. It's good news. Now, this brings us to our first hindrance to approaching God in prayer, which we'll see. In verses 19 through 21, God seems unapproachable. One reason that we don't approach God is because he seems unapproachable. It's pretty simple, right? Uh, This hindrance, I think, will be echoed in the other ones that follow, but it's helpful to point it out here too. Have you or your friends ever thought, well, if there is a God, I can't know him? Or even if I could know something about him, he's so big and distant that I couldn't know him intimately let alone have a conversation with him. Or you might even think that because he's normally not approachable, you're going to have to think of some creative ways to get his attention so that he'll listen to you. But God doesn't want us to be so afraid of him that we don't approach him. And he also doesn't want us to approach him like entitled children who demand things from him and disrespect everyone else around us because of who we are. I'm a child of God. Now, Jesus, he condemned this second type of approach to God in a parable in Luke 18. He introduced a Pharisee, and then he introduced somebody else who's just called a sinner. And the scene is on the Pharisee at first, and he starts praying to God, 
God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that man. And look at all these good things that I've done. As if he needs to give God a a list of all of his good deeds so that God is indebted to him and must listen to his request and answer. And then the the camera pans to the, the man. And I can imagine it panning to him, and you don't see him, and then it pans down to the ground. And the sinner is on his knees, crying out. He can't even look to heaven. He's so humiliated and broken. But that sinner does something that God loves. He simply admits that he's a sinner, and he cries out for mercy. So who's justified before God that day? The sinner. The dirty old sinner who's honest about who he is and cries out to God for mercy. God loves that humility. So how might that parable help us to understand our passage here? Well, twice we read references to Jesus' death by his blood and through his flesh. First, Christ paid for our sins, which separate us from God, by the costliest gift that he could give. His very own blood. The author makes mention of Jesus' blood and his body in the curtain. The priest would have to pull the curtain back in order to enter the very presence of God. This vivid image is meant to show us that we have to pass through the body of Christ. That is his sacrificial death in order to approach God. In fact, in the gospel narratives, uh, when Jesus was on the cross and he was breathing his last... The curtain in the temple, remember I told you it was this huge, thick, tall, massive curtain. It was ripped in half from top to bottom. This act was performed by God to signify that there's a new pathway to God that's been opened. And God's the one who's opened it. Direct access is now available. So we approach God confidently because of the work that Jesus did. It's already done. He did it. But secondly, we also approach God because of the work that Jesus is doing now. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus is the great priest over the people of God, over the house of God, which means that Jesus has a distinguishable people that he's representing before God. First John tells us that he's our advocate before God. He's the one who's ever making intercession for us, like we read in Hebrews 7. We're invited to approach God. We can even say that we have a right. We're authorized to approach God and his throne because Jesus speaks for us and not because we've convinced him by our good spiritual works. Those will never get us before God. Now, remember one of the things that distinguishes Jesus from the priests of the past. Each of those priests eventually died. Some of those priests were holy and pleasing to God, They represented the people well before God. And some of them took advantage of the people, abusing the sacrifice and the people for their own shameful gain. But Jesus, who loves us and gave himself up for us, will always be our priest. He rose from the dead, and he will never die again. You and I's access to God is indestructible. He gave it to us, and nobody can take it away. So now let's look at that phrase, the new and living way, which we find in verse 20. 
it's now, it's new because Jesus has opened that pathway to God that didn't exist before. Now, recently our family went to Dollywood, uh, this magnet for tourists. Give you a piece of free advice. Don't go the day after Thanksgiving. Pick any other day, but that day. Um, and the kids and I, we were standing in line for this roller coaster called the Lightning Rod. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I hadn't. But let me give you another piece of advice. Research your rides before you get in line for them. We didn't realize how crazy that ride was going to be until we were right before and is given all the facts and the stats of how awesome this ride was. And I'm standing there with my 8-year-old and 9-year-old and me, and I think I was probably more terrified than they were. And I thought we would stand there for 30 minutes in the line. They had that little app that now you can pull up and it says what the wait time is. Liar. It's a liar. Okay? We stood there for over an hour in the line. Now, this was our first time to visit the park, and I had never heard of the Time Saver Pass. But it's exactly the way you think it is. If you pay a premium, you can cut the line, you can move to the very front. Now, there's a completely different line for the Time Saver people, and they can access it any time that they like. All they have to do is wave that badge. I got my Time Saver badge. And to put it in everybody else's face as they walk by. No, nobody would do that. Now, back to Jesus. There's only one line. There's a direct access to God line. There's no more waiting. You're authorized to move straight to the front, but not because you bought the pass. You can't even buy the pass. (laughs) Jesus bought the pass. He paid for it with his own blood. And the way is also living because the one, Jesus, who's made the way, though he died, he's now alive, and he'll never die again. And the way that Jesus provides leads to eternal life. Because he lives, you have direct access to God's throne forever. So let me ask you, friends, have you ever tried to approach God uh, through any other merits other than the blood of Jesus? If you're not a Christian, maybe you've tried to approach him through your own good deeds or intentions or through the ministry of someone other than Jesus, Muhammad or any other religious teacher, or maybe you hope that the universe smiles on you and that you get uh, bonus points because you pray, and praying itself is a noble work. But the author of Hebrews, uh, he joins the course of other biblical authors when we're told that Jesus alone provides access to God. There's no other way. God invites you to approach him with confidence and hope. So trust him. By putting aside your fears and your pride. Put it aside. Approach God confidently, but don't pretend that you can represent yourself. Jesus represents you. He will always represent you. And he will forever provide you access to the Father. So don't let the thought that God is unapproachable keep you from praying to him. He invites you to come to him. So come to him. Now, by nature of the positive exhortation that we find in verse 22... We can see the second hindrance to approaching God in prayer. I would say that that's, we're too focused on our sin. We're too focused on our sin. The author of Hebrews tells us to approach God in faith. That is full assurance of faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. 
And the reference to the sprinkling of our consciences and the washing of our bodies is a present reality. It's already happened. The Christian, by nature of Jesus' work on the cross, has been made new. Jeremiah prophesied that we would be given new hearts. That is, new desires and new delights that line up with God's desires and His delights. And both the sprinkling of our hearts and the washing of our bodies point to this one reality. All of us were once dirty, but now we're clean. We've been made clean. Somebody else cleaned us. We are pure. We're right before God. We are righteous. Do you ever call each other that? You're righteous. Jesus has made you righteous. Other passages in Scripture tell us that we put on the righteousness of Christ like a clean garment. The Christian's desires, thoughts, and actions are transformed by the work of Christ. But, you and I still struggle with sin now, don't we? I mean, if we're really honest, we sin. We're ashamed to go to God and to ask Him for what we need because we're still dealing with that sin. You know the one I'm talking about. You said that you were done with it. But here you are again. You've sinned again. Will God forgive you this time? Then you also hear this voice in the back of your head. You're a hypocrite. You should have been further than this by now. You're never going to get past this. And you feel helpless. Sit with that. You feel helpless. That's actually a good place to be, though you don't want to stay there. Instead of your continual struggle with sin being a hindrance to approaching God, you have to see that your awareness of your unworthiness is a gift from God. The fact that He lets you know that you're not worthy to approach Him is a gift. Let your grief over your sin drive you to Christ, not away from him. The scriptures talk often about Jesus coming for the broken and the sick, the ones who mess up, they can't help themselves. And he opposes the ones that think that they're doing just fine. They don't need any help. James tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And the humble person realizes that only God can fix her sin problem. And only God can offer the invitation to approach himself. To return to the sinner in our earlier parable, you remember the, the religious Pharisee and the generic sinner? Can you imagine if he would have looked at his unworthiness and he would have thought, it's pointless to cry out to God. He won't hear me. I'm a sinner. No, the reason he's a good example to us is because he recognizes unworthiness and he cried out anyway. And God heard him. Friends, trust that God's words are true. Jesus died for your sins. Listen to this. He died for your sins. He paid your penalty. God's wrath against your sin was and is still today satisfied. He's given Jesus for your sins, and so he'll give you everything else that you need. So believe, repent, and ask. He invites you to come to him with your sin, to confess your sin, and he promises to forgive you, and to bless you with what you need. So go to him. All right, in verse 23, we find our third hindrance to approaching God in prayer. We lose our hope. We lose our hope. The author calls his readers to hold on tightly to, 
to their belief in Christ because Christ held on to the very end. He was faithful. He completed his mission even though it cost him everything. This hope was not wishful thinking. It's not like hoping that your favorite restaurant is open tomorrow or hoping that you'll get that new job. Now, this hope that the Bible talks about is the surest promise that we have in this life because it's firmly secured on the bedrock of Christ. Our hope is Christ. There is no other. He's made promises that he will keep. He will always keep them. So, you and I, we have lots of commitments. We sign up for a four-year bachelor's degree, or we decide to pursue a master's or a doctorate. Some of us marry and say, death... Till death do us part, say, till death do us part. Not that marriage is death. Don't hear that. Um, some of us commit to 30-year mortgages so that we can buy a house. We intentionally discipline our bodies at the gym and in our diets to make them healthy and to make them run at their optimal level. I know all of you are secretly making your New Year's resolutions. You'll be done with them by February. We'll put other things that we'd enjoy doing on hold or we'll deny other options so that we can meet these goals and keep these commitments. But sometimes something happens that we didn't plan for. Something else becomes bigger in your mind than the commitment that you've made. You forget why you made that commitment to begin with. It becomes costlier than you had planned. You get distracted and then you become deflated. It's hard to carry on that commitment. Has that happened to you? Well, it certainly happened to me. It happens even still. Just ask YMCA and Planet Fitness about me. There are several things that can cause us to lose hope and prayer. To name just a few, our cares and our concerns, pleasures of the world and sorrow. You can lose hope when focused on the cares and concerns of the world, which we're all likely to think of. When I sit down to read my Bible or to pray, all the things I need to do for the day pop in my head. Has that ever happened to you? I'm distracted and it's easy for me to put my Bible down and pick up my email and just start solving problems. When I forget God, even unintentionally, and start uh, in this, when I forget God, even unintentionally, in this way, my hope, which I joyfully profess becomes my anxiety which I profess my hope in Christ becomes distant and anxiety fills my mind and my words with others and I act on my own strength or maybe you lose hope because of pleasure an easy one to pick on here is binge watching friends, stranger things the crown I don't know, gun smoke or some other guilty pleasure show, you know your show if you watch TV. Don't hear me say that watching TV itself is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not giving you a checklist to be holy. I assume that you're making wise decisions in what you watch and read and listen to. But I want you to consider this. Have you ever connected your TV watching or your social media consumption or whatever else fills your pleasure bucket with lethargy and prayer? Would you consider that maybe investing in the hope that you profess through prayer is not as exciting 
because it doesn't measure up with all the entertainment that's at your fingertips. Instead of pleasure being a gift from God, it can actually drive us away from the God who loves us and invites us into a conversation with him. Or maybe you face sorrow. If you haven't faced sorrow yet, you will. Sorrow over lost relationships, sorrow over your own sin, sorrow over the brokenness of the world around you. And you used to pray with such fervor that God would bring reconciliation or that he would give you power to overcome sin or that he would bring peace where there's chaos. It's hard to pray for a long time about the same thing and to not feel like you're receiving an answer, isn't it? It's hard. Keep praying. You begin to lose hope that God is hearing you or if he's hearing you, that he just doesn't care anymore. But how does the author here exhort us? Because he's faithful. That's what he says. Jesus, your high priest, is faithful. So don't give up. He will never, ever give up on you. He will not get distracted by the world's busyness. He won't become dull through pleasure. Nor will he lose hope through sorrow. So look to him. Look to the one who set his face to the cross for the joy that was set before him. And he completed his mission. Look to the one who prayed when he was tempted to be anxious. To the one who prayed when he was sorrowful to death. Look to the one who was tempted with the pleasures of the world, but found more satisfaction in his father's words. He refused to fill up his life with worldly passions. Are you ready to give up? Even now, Jesus stands before the throne of God for you. Right now, as we sit here, this morning. So look to him, trust him, and take another step to him as you cry out to him in prayer for mercy. Friends, do not be hindered from approaching God in prayer because you lose hope. He still invites you to himself. So look to him and let him restore your hope. He will. Now verses 24 and 25, we're now led to our fourth and final hindrance to approaching God in prayer. And maybe this is the least expected of them all. We lack community. We lack community. Now, when we read these verses, we should immediately think of the corporate assembly of believers. We shouldn't forsake gathering together to worship through song, to hear God's word, and to remind each other of God's promises. Others at the time that Hebrews were written were forsaking that gathering for any number of reasons. And we know that that happens today, too. Up to this point, it would be natural to think of our hindrances to prayer and our growth in prayer as an individual act. But we want to consider the ramifications of corporate prayer, too. First, when we fail to meet with other believers, we can be hindered in our personal prayers. As you and I know from personal experience, when we don't have regular encouragement and accountability with others, It's just easier to not be faithful in prayer or discipleship (coughs) or in sharing the gospel with others or in serving others. We need to remind each other on a regular basis that God's word is true, that he hears us when we pray trusting him, and that we need to repent of our sins and believe his promises. Second, when we fail to meet with others, We naturally fail to pray with them. It just makes sense, right? 
You don't see others. You don't talk to them. You don't pray with them. And when we fail to pray with others, we're losing out on a precious opportunity to love others and to spur them on to good works. This is a cost that I want us to linger on for a moment. How often do you pray with others? Whether it's in corporate gatherings like this one, or it's in small groups that meet to pray, or it's one-on-one with one of your friends or your spouse. Spouses can be friends too, by the way. And when we gather together with others to pray, we can spur them on to loving good works. We can encourage them to keep believing and trusting God. We're approaching the one who made them for his glory and who promises that he's returning. So let us gather together and pray as we wait to be reconciled, fully reconciled, and fully brought before God. And there's a group that I <clears throat> gather with on the first Friday of the month to pray. And what I love about this group is that as we bow our heads and we pour out our hearts, we're all in the same position before God. All the differences of our lives are washed away, as in love we carry each other's burdens and joys to our one Father. I'm spurred on to good works as I <clears throat> hear others praying for the physical and the spiritual needs of others and praying for the nations to know Christ. And as we pray for Christ to be known, both here and around the world, I'm challenged to make Christ's name known here and around the world. We also grow in our ability to pray when we pray with others. Megan Hill says it really well in this book that she wrote called Praying Together. It says, in praying together, we disciple one another. We strengthen one another's faith, testify to our experiences of God, shape one another's repentance and desires, stir one another to thanksgiving, and encourage one another in godly habits. In these things, too, we also help one another to resist various temptations to sin. That hits the nail on the head. All of the Christian life is, is undergirded and is, is fueled by prayer and in praying together with others. So we can't kid ourselves in thinking that we'll do just fine in approaching God's throne on our own. Again, you and I often think of our relationship with God in an individualistic manner. And it's true, he saved you individually. But he's also saving a people. And so he wants us together to approach him. Now with all these hindrances to prayer in mind, it's essential that we encourage each other to pray, and then we pray together. So don't wander away from the community who can remind you that God invites you to himself in prayer. Surround yourselves with others who pray by the power of the Spirit through the obedience of Christ to our loving Father. So I'm just going to leave you with this final question. Do you live in the holy places with Jesus? If you don't, why not? What's hindering you? As we move into a new year with both sorrow and joy sure to come, I encourage you to approach God's throne confidently in faith, hope, and love. Now, God has invited us to approach his throne together, so I think it's appropriate that we do that now. Let's pray together. Oh, 
Oh God, uh, what a gift it is that you invite us to your very throne room to pray. Thank you that Jesus, when faced with trial after trial, even to death, didn't give up, but he opened up a new and living way for us to approach you. Give us confidence through the work of Christ to approach you in every circumstance, God, so that you receive the praise and the glory in our lives. Grow our love for you and for others around us. Make us a praying people, O God, a people that are waiting for you patiently. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.